Welcome to Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this is my second episode in my mini-series about space, the science of space, and the science fiction that portrays it. For this episode, I got to speak with Harriet Brettel, who studies planetary science at Caltech. Caltech, by the way, is at the forefront of studying other planets and studying space. No, thanks very much for having me, Carly. Uh, so you kind of covered all the big points already. Um, I'm a PhD student in planetary sciences at Caltech. I started my PhD in September, so I'm, I'm pretty new to it. Um, my The areas that I'm focusing on in my research at the moment are primarily in the solar system. So I'm looking at trying to understand the, the incredible storms that the Juno mission has discovered at the poles of Jupiter. And I'm also looking at doing observations of Europa, one of Jupiter's moons, and understanding uh, what's going on in its, in its atmosphere. Jupiter has been in the news recently because really high-resolution images were captured of Jupiter's surface. You may have seen them already in your news feeds. They are gorgeous. Yeah, it's awesome. Like, oh man, those those images are just incredible. So the, the Juno mission has been orbiting around Jupiter for about a year now. And so we've got these really, really incredible pictures of the North and South Pole that we haven't really ever seen before from a spacecraft. And we've got the images in both the, the visible light wavelengths, but also the infrared. And you can see these incredibly regular um, storm patterns on both the South Pole and the North Pole, which are Uh, I I mean, they're just mind-blowing, you know, you you can kind of make this stuff up, it's amazing. These images of Jupiter are striking because we've never really seen these storm patterns before, especially at this height. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right, they're they're cyclones, which means they're kind of... negative height anomalies, so to speak. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting that we see kind of similar but slightly different patterns on both poles. So the North Pole has got one storm in the middle and then eight storms around in a kind of octagon shape. And then the South Pole has got one cyclone at the pole and five uh, storms around it in a almost perfectly regular pentagon, which is really bizarre. So one of the things I'm working on at the moment is trying to understand how you can get a system that is stable for at least the year that we've been observing this system and know that it's know that it's been there. Um, it's very different to the Earth. Storms, cyclones on the Earth last kind of 30 days tops. And so we're seeing storms on Jupiter. I mean, the Great Red Spot is another classic example that seems to have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I guess this is a great example of where the science is even weirder than the fiction. <laughs> Caltech is really the place to be to study planetary science. But Harriet didn't get there directly. It, it's been a bit of a roundabout journey, which I guess has kind of made it interesting. Uh, I've always been interested in, in space and astronomy ever since I was younger. Uh, I remember my dad used to take my sister and I out stargazing in the back garden and we'd look at the, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and the kind of different constellations in the sky. And it, it's something that kind of stuck with me. You know, the, the wonder of the universe is something that you don't, you, you can't really get on the same scales in, in any other subject. So, so I've always been interested in in astronomy. And when I was trying to decide what to study at university, I settled on math. I kind of figured that if I wanted to do something with regards to understanding the universe, maths is probably a, a pretty good kind of option to cover all the bases. And the, the problem was I found the subject at university was very abstract. You know, you're dealing with all these proofs and theorems, and it was hard to kind of place them in the real world, which was kind of challenging. And I, I ended up uh, 
moving into to economics for a few years. So I, I worked in finance in London and New York. Um, and after a few years, realized that it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do and, and went back to kind of trying to figure out what it was that I was really excited about and kind of trying to figure out ways that I could get more involved in the space community. Um, so I started volunteering for the Planetary Society, which is a global organization that is a huge advocate of, of uh, public science and public involvement in space exploration. And uh, went back to school, did a, a part-time uh, study in, in astrophysics back in the UK. Um, and then after that, that kind of gave me the confidence of thinking, hey, you know, this is one, this is really interesting stuff. And two, maybe I can actually do this as a, as a full-time full-time career and it was at that point I started applying to to grad schools particularly in the US and then I ended up at Caltech. Caltech is fantastic we've got incredible facilities here which I feel very very lucky to be to be able to use so one of the the telescopes that we have access to here is the is the Keck telescopes on, on Mauna Kea uh, in Hawaii uh, and, and that's the telescope that I'm using for my my other research project which is observing Europa so with, with that, we're using the telescope to look for specifically sodium in the atmosphere of Europa um, and trying to see how the levels of sodium uh, change over time, over the months that we observe it, and seeing if we can infer anything about uh, surface activity or uh, surface processes on Europa. Yeah, I still have to pinch myself that I, I get to do this as a day job. It's, it's very cool. <laughs> for people who want to get into science professionally, but maybe they've already gotten their degree. Volunteering at organizations really helped introduce Harriet to the field. It was definitely a, a difficult transition. It was something I wanted to do for a long time, but didn't really kind of have the courage to. The, the gap between what my day job was at the time and, and working in the space industry in, in some way just seemed kind of too vast a leap. Um, and one of the things that really helped with that was was getting more involved in kind of public outreach um, and doing things in my spare time just to kind of remind myself that this was a subject that I was really passionate about. So I talked about the, the Planetary Society, which was fantastic to get involved in. I started volunteering for an organization called the, the Space Generation Advisory Council, which you ha if you haven't heard of, you should definitely check out. It's, it's a really cool Again, international organization that supports students and young professionals who want to advance their careers in the space industry. Um, and so I started getting involved in these different uh, space-related organizations in my, in my spare time and slowly started to, to realize that the space industry is absolutely huge and there's so many different opportunities. And you don't just need to be an astronaut or a rocket scientist to do something related to space and space exploration. And, and that's when I started to realize that, hey, maybe my, my background in, in math and statistics and finance is, is relevant in some way for, to kind of transition over. I looked up the Space Generation Advisory Council and it is huge. It partners with so many organizations to further the mission of space research and exploration. Their website is spacegeneration.org. You can sign up for their mailing list, like I did, just to keep updated on events and space news. So back to Harriet. Working in finance using statistics helped her in graduate school and studying space, more than I expected. 
Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think that having a slightly different perspective is always is always useful. Um, having worked for a few years, um, oh sorry, that was my computer. <laughs> um, having worked for a few years, it definitely gave me a different perspective coming back to grad school. You know, I I I feel um, like I know what I've come here to do, um, which which definitely helps. And 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 also some of the kind of like transferable skills have been has been very useful. As I said, I I did a fair bit of kind of maths and statistics in my in my day job, which I didn't realize was so kind of relevant to astronomy and planetary science until I came to a conference. It was actually here at Caltech, which was looking at how you can use statistics to discover exoplanets. And I was like, hey, all of these talks were talking about these analytical techniques, and I was like, I recognize this stuff. This is really cool. So it was nice to kind of see that that gap get smaller and smaller and kind of bridge across and, and show what what I'd done in the past, how that could be relevant to, to the space industry. This episode was brought to you by Audible. Audible is the place for audiobooks. And for being a listener of this show, you can get two of them. Might I recommend War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells? and Contact by Carl Sagan. Go to audibletrial.com slash factandsci-fi. That's audibletrial.com slash F-A-C-T-A-N-D-S-E-I-F-I for your free two audiobooks. So I asked Harriet what science fiction she was hooked on now, and we're both hooked on The Expanse. I've mentioned the show before, of course. It's on the Sci-Fi Channel, and season three is airing now. Yes, so when I'm not trying to understand planets in the solar system, I've recently become hooked on a couple of TV shows. Um, one is uh, The Expanse, which I think you've watched as well, Kai? Yes, I am currently... Uh, I. I'm about halfway through season two. Oh, great. We're at the same place. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I watched season one um, last year, and then I went back to start watching season two a few weeks ago and realized I'd forgotten everything, so I rewatched season one again, and, and it was awesome. So, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that's a really fantastic show. It's, it's really uh, – it, it's got a really interesting dynamic. I like that it's essentially like a political drama but just set in space. And they explore some really cool sci-fi concepts in a way where it, it feels like they're just kind of subtly doing it in a way that's not kind of like too in your face. But every now and then they'll make some offhand comment or I'll be like, ah, oh, someone's done their research. That's really cool. What I like about The Expanse is that they take the concept, what if we had to colonize the asteroid belt? And what if we colonized Mars and we had colonies that could only be traveled to by like months long journeys? What if generations of people were raised on those colonies? Um, yeah, I, I guess so, so. So in the expanse, there are essentially kind of three uh, regions of space that are uh, inhabited by by humans. The the Earth system, which includes the Earth and the Moon, Mars, and the asteroid belt. Um, and one of the things they go into is kind of talking about the physiology of the, the people the people who live in the asteroid belt, the belters, because they've grown up in this low gravity environment. And, and this is a show that's kind of a few good few generations in where there have been people living 
in, in like outer space for like numerous generations. And so these, these belters are kind of taller than the average human. They, they can't survive under, um, earth gravity. Um, and so it's just really interesting to have those kind of little subtle. This reminded me of Scott and Mark Kelly, who I've mentioned before, the two brother astronauts. One went up into space for a year, and now they're studying how space has changed him. Now, this is straight out of science fiction. And it's funny because the expanse feels gritty enough that it seems real. Yeah, it, it's really cool. And they make some other kind of off-the-hand comments, like there's a there's a conversation between, I think, someone from Mars and someone from the Earth. And the, the, the Martians are talking about um, their kind of previous attempts to terraform the planet and how they've lived under domes their whole life, you know, because the the atmosphere of Mars is, is like uninhabitable. So they've had to create these environments that they can live in, which kind of changes their perspective of um, the Earth as this kind of uh, ungrateful planet full of people who take for granted all these wonderful things like trees and grass and being able to just look at the blue sky, which, which is quite interesting. I like that. <laughs> In a couple episodes, I'm going to do a deep dive into space colonization. The book Artemis by Andy Weir is similar to the struggles of Mars colonies in the Expanse, except it's about a colony on the moon. And the inequality between the richest people who can go to the moon as like their vacation homes and the working class people who have to hustle to make a living there. Another show that I think depicts the downside of technological progress is Altered Carbon, which Harriet had also recently watched. Yeah, that was a fantastic show. Really enjoyed that. And again, it's a very, it seems like a very well-informed sci-fi show. They kind of present this futuristic technology called a stack, whereby human consciousness can be downloaded into essentially a computer chip that goes into the back of your skull. Um, And the human bodies are essentially disposable and you can upgrade your body or your sleeve as they call it in the show um to a different version you can have backup bodies the kind of the the richest in society are essentially immortal because they can upgrade anytime they want to um and and it's a really interesting exploration of like some of the the implications of what that technology would do to society i felt like they kind of explored it in a very a very realistic way it was yeah, it was a really good show, and it had a great plot as well. It's always nice when you get a sci-fi story that, one, deals with the science really well, um, and two, has a very good plot that is kind of, in and of itself, very exciting to, to follow. Neither of us have read the book that Altered Carbon is based on, but one sci-fi book that was formative for Harriet was Carl Sagan's Contact, which was also adapted into a film starring Jodie Foster which I discussed in the gender and sexuality episode for its portrayal of female scientists. I remember when I was younger, my dad would read like my sister and I bedtime stories and we'd get things like War of the Worlds as our bedtime story when we were like 10 years old, which was was brilliant. And um, what else did I read when I was younger? I I think the defining sci-fi for me was reading Contact by Carl Sagan which is a one of his fiction works, which basically tells this tale of the first uh, uh, contact by uh, extraterrestrials. They send this message to the cosmos, um, which is a series of prime numbers. And I loved math, and I loved this idea that aliens would communicate with us through the language of the universe and give us these prime numbers. 
characters and it's just such a wonderfully well thought out story of what might happen if we did get this kind of signal from from extraterrestrials and how we would deal with it and and what might happen um so that was probably that was the biggest I, I think that was probably the sci-fi that had the biggest impact on me in terms of wanting to be involved in in space exploration and in a kind of romantic way wanting to kind of discover things about the universe and and understand if we were alone that kind of thing um i was a big fan of asimov as well i guess that counts as sci-fi right with all the the robot stories um again the, the thing i love about asimov is he takes these very simple rules of robotics a robot cannot cause harm to any human or through an action allow harm to come to a human number two is that the robot cannot hurt itself unless it uh, contravenes with the second law. And the third law, I think, is a robot has to do what a human tells it to do unless it contravenes with rule one or two. Um, and so it's these really simple set of rules, um, but he explores them through all these different short stories. Each one kind of pulls out a different kind of thread um, of of an idea and, and explores kind of how those rules might work in practice and what might go wrong. They're super simple and you think, yeah, that, I mean, I have to say, I think they're pretty damn good. I think if we were going to code anything into the AI of the future, I would definitely start with Asimov's Laws of Robotics <laughs> and then maybe we can kind of build on them. <laughs> when I told Harriet that AI programmers are using Asimov's work when they program, she was delighted. That is that is fantastic. I, I love hearing stories of where science fiction and science uh, scientific discoveries have kind of like blended or merged together or, or one forecast the other. That's a really good example. I like that a lot. <laughs> then I wanted to know what a planetary science PhD student finds awful representation of science. Um, that's a great question. I'm, I'm trying to think of like terrible movies that like I mean, where you just kind of like hang your head in shame and you're like, oh, no, this is not what science is. Uh, maybe the day after tomorrow. That's It's not like planetary science at all, but that's probably one where you're just like, oh, this is really not doing like the cause of climate change any good. <laughs> um, so that's probably one that I'd struggle with. Um and maybe like when you see like the giant tidal wave coming and you're like, oh, climate change doesn't really happen in two days, but, but that's okay with it um there's some really cool stories in sci-fi though that have made kind of wacky predictions which i kind of, which i quite like you know things that have somehow come true even though um you wouldn't really expect it um one one like fantastic prediction which kind of blew my mind that i discovered a few months ago is um dr werner von braun who's uh who was one of the kind of pioneers of, of modern rocketry uh, originally in Germany and then moving to the United States to support the, the, the Americans in the space race. Um, he wrote a sci-fi story called Project Mars, which was essentially his scientific vision of uh, what a future interaction with or what the first human trip to Mars might look like. And, he makes some really cool predictions. Um, the book is written in 1949, and it's set in 1980. And in the story, uh, there is a giant um, artificial moon 
called Lunetta that orbits the Earth, and it's a research facility, kind of exactly like the ISS is, which is pretty cool. Um, the United States of Earth have finally found peace, and the Cold War is over. And I, I kind of like this idea that we've kind of all come together in one wonderfully happy family. And maybe that's not so realistic, but we, we can wait and see. Um, and we discover that there is this civilized life on Mars, and essentially the story goes through the first human trip to go and go and visit these Martians. Um, and the crazy prediction comes about where von Braun describes the Martian leaders. Um, and I want to just quote you like a line from this story because it's just incredible. Um, the Martian government was directed by ten men the leader of whom was elected by universal suffrage for five years and entitled Elon. That's crazy. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so this is a story written in 1949 that predicts that the leader of the Martian government is going to be called Elon. And it's obviously it's just like a really wacky coincidence, but it's, it's a very, very funny one where you're just like, this is just wonderful. <laughs> Speaking of Elon Musk, I had to ask Harriet what she thought of private industries taking on space exploration, along with or maybe even instead of governments. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really exciting. Um, I, I I can understand why some people are a little bit a little bit skeptical, um, but I think it's really fantastic to have a commercial space industry that can provide um, competition and, and create progress in a way that. It is very difficult to do if you've only got um, governments and uh, countries involved in the space industry. We've seen kind of huge progress in terms of um, capability of the, the private space industry in the last few years. And that's largely down to the fact that I think that the, the space industry itself has become kind of much more commercially viable. There are there are things that the that private space companies can do that will will make money in a way that they haven't been able to before. You know, you see funding for uh, small startups that are creating these satellite constellations around the world that are providing data and communications um, across the whole globe, which is really exciting. Um, people are talking about asteroid mining in like a, a non-joke way, which is just crazy to think that this is the kind of technology that we we uh, we might have in the future, where we go and go to asteroids and we mine things like water or uh, uh, precious metals or whatever else you need um, to be used in space and also to be used back in Earth. So I, I think it's very exciting to see the progress that's being made. Um, there's a few things where I've been like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't ideal. The, the one. The one that came up came up recently was um, I've got to make sure I get the company right. I think it was Rocket Lab who launched the Humanity Star. I don't know if you heard this story. No, I hadn't. Um, so this was a, a satellite company. They, I think it's a satellite company or a rocket company. They um, they launched what they called a, a Humanity Star up into the sky, and essentially it's just like a giant disco ball that's going to be on a um, on an orbit around the Earth. And the idea behind it is that um, they've got an app that goes with it, you know, so people can kind of follow this star in the sky. It, it's meant to be very bright the way they've designed it. It's literally like a disco ball. Um, and the idea is to bring humanity together, you know, to like gaze and wonder at this this thing that they've put up in the sky, um, which like on the face of it sounds wonderful, but then you kind of think, well, 
there's plenty of stars in the sky already, you know. I don't really I don't think we need another one. Um, and if you want to track something that's moving across the sky, sky fast, then look at the International Space Station. You know, you, you can do exactly the same thing. Um, so I can understand there's this risk of uh, promotion and space debris, which is a very genuine issue. There's only a finite amount of space around Earth for things to orbit. So I, I think we do need to think a little bit carefully about, about how that how that process works. Maybe something different, like a Tesla going around space that can send like awesome photos back. Like I'm, I'm okay with that. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> but it, it's definitely it's definitely subjective, you know. Like one person's piece of art is an, is another person's piece of trash. So um, yeah, there's there's definitely a differences of of opinion on that one, which I I can understand. Harriet and I wrapped up the podcast, and she wanted to encourage people to check out those organizations she mentioned, the Space Generation Advisory Council and the Planetary Society. Follow Harriet for more space awesomeness at Harriet underscore Brettle on Twitter. If you want to support this podcast, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't have Apple Podcasts, then tell one friend about Fact and Science Fiction, and then tweet me proof at Fact and Sci-Fi. Check out more content on factandsci-fi.blogspot.com. And lastly, thanks for listening.